being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong on june 2nd 1985 leonard lake and charles ang drove to a hardware and lumber store in south san francisco they were there to shoplift supplies ang wore a heavy parka for this purpose he picked up a table vice and walked out of the store an off-duty San Francisco Police Department officer saw Aang shoplift and told a store clerk who ran outside to confront Aang. Aang stopped at their car and then briskly kept walking. The clerk ran after Aang in the parking lot shouting, Hey fella, I'd like to speak to you. But Aang kept walking and got away. Several employees gathered in the parking lot and looked at the car that Aang clearly put something in. They could clearly see the stolen vice in the car through the window. The store clerks called the cops. Meanwhile, Leonard Lake, a big, burly, bearded, bald guy, approached the employees and offered to pay for the vice. Lake went into the store to try and purchase the vice in order to defuse the situation. Not long after, a San Francisco Police Department officer pulled up and got a rundown of what had happened. He was talking to people outside. The officer ran the plates of the car and found that the car was registered as missing, but it had the plates of a different car, which was also missing. Something very strange was afoot. As the officer could see that there was stolen property within the car, he opened the car and retrieved the vice. Then he searched the car and found a backpack which contained a 22 caliber handgun with a silencer. The officer called in the serial number. Leonard Lake came back out of the store where he tried to tell the officer that he had purchased a vice and that everything was fine now. The officer arrested the man for possession of a silencer. At the station, the police began to realize they had something very strange on their hands. Two missing cars were tied to this man, whose associate had shoplifted, and they found a silencer and a stolen gun. They brought in an experienced detective who pressed Lake to explain what on earth was going on. Lake, who at that point was calling himself Robin Stapley, which was one of the car owners of one of the missing cars, you know, Lake asked for pen and paper. The police will usually give you pen and paper if they think you're going to write out a confession. They also removed his handcuffs, so Lake was able to write. Lake asked for a cup of water, which they brought. Lake had written out a note which read, Dear Lynn, I love you, I forgive you. Freedom is better than all else. Tell Janet I'm sorry. Mom, Patty, and all, I'm sorry for all the trouble. Love, Leonard. At that point, Lake began to talk to the police. He told them his real name was Leonard Thomas Lake and that he was wanted for outstanding charges in Mendocino County. He also gave up the name of the shoplifter, Charles Chitat Ng, and he told them that Ng had served time at Leavenworth. Then, before anyone could realize what he was doing, Lake reached under his collar and took out a cyanide pill gulped it down with water, and immediately collapsed, convulsing. 
they rushed him to a hospital where Lake was kept alive for a few days before he died on June 6, 1985. The San Francisco Police Department was basically like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and if you were to tell that story without the rest of it, I mean, what would you think? This guy sounds like a fucking spy, right? Well, let's go through the rest of the story of Lake and Aang, two of the strangest serial killers, and we will see what their story might have to tell us. So, Leonard Lake was born in San Francisco in 1945 or 1946. Weirdly, I have seen different books cite different years. Leonard Lake's family life was messy, and he was largely raised by his grandmother. His mother worked as a nurse in mental institutions. She said that she encouraged Leonard to take an interest in the naked human form. She encouraged him to take nude photographs of his sisters and cousins. At a certain point, Lake's parents separated, which supposedly caused him some abandonment issues, though I think it would be a mistake to point to this as like a some great key to unlocking the mystery of Leonard Lake, right? Around eight or nine, Lake kept mice, which started as just a pair, but soon became dozens and dozens. A neighborhood friend said he had a little city for them, a regular little mouse world. There were tunnels and castles, mazes, and even a little train for them to ride on. At a certain point, there were too many mice, and Lake was ordered to get rid of them. To do so, he used a chemistry set, killing them with acid. The neighborhood friend said Lake used acid on the mice, and they turned into an ugly green liquid. Later on in adolescence, Lake was said to have extorted sexual favors from his siblings. Lake hated his brother Donald, who received a head injury, so he was a little bit slow. Leonard Lake would tell many, many people throughout his life how much he hated his brother mostly because his brother was, as Lake called it, a drain on society, receiving social security disability checks. Also, Lake expressed an early interest in Norse paganism. At 18, Lake read the novel The Collector by John Fowles, which is a novel where a man abducts a woman named Miranda and keeps her in his cellar. The novel thrilled and entranced Lake, who fantasized about it for the rest of his life. In 1964, having turned 18, Leonard Lake enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps. Do any of you people know who Charles Whitman was? None of you dumbasses knows. Private Cowboy. Sir, he was that guy who shot all those people from that tower in Austin, Texas, sir. That's affirmative. Charles Whitman killed 12 people from a 28-story observation tower at the University of Texas from distances of up to 400 yards. Anybody know who Lee Harvey Oswald was? Private Snowball. Sir, he shot Kennedy, sir. That's right. And do you know how far away he was? Sir, it was pretty far from that book suppository building, sir. <laughs> All right, knock it off. 250 feet. He was 250 feet away and shooting at a moving target. Oswald got off three rounds with an old Italian bolt-action rifle in only six seconds and scored two hits, including a headshot. Do any of you people know where these individuals learned how to shoot? 
Private Joker. Sir, in the Marines, sir. In the Marines, outstanding. Those individuals showed what one motivated Marine and his rifle can do. And before you ladies leave my island, you will all be able to do the same thing. Now, according to Leonard Blake's military record, he served two tours of duty in Vietnam as a radar electronics technician in what is considered a non-combatant role. The Marines sent him to train at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, where he took advanced courses in aircraft radar work. Blake appears to have loved being in the Marines. In the years to come, he would constantly use military jargon and would call any project an op or an operation. Blake said that he really enjoyed the Vietnam War. He would tell people that he killed many people in the war. As I've mentioned, his military record, his official military record, does not reflect that. Blake said that the toughest thing he had to do in Vietnam was to zip up body bags. I think he was saying it like it was a badass thing, but it might have literally been true if he didn't actually see combat. Lake got married quite young, and then he was shipped off to Vietnam. In Vietnam, Lake spent time at Da Nang, where he experienced what was called a delusional breakdown. Lake, an atheist, did not want to talk to a chaplain, and he specifically requested to see a psychiatrist instead. This shrink diagnosed him with schizoid personality disorder. Part of this period of hysterical neurosis included an incident where Lake attempted to steal government property. Specifically, he was after some type of equipment, but he was apparently unsuccessful, and the failure of his mission, quote-unquote, caused him depression. Lake received psychotherapy at Camp Pendleton. Lake was discharged from the Marines in 1971. He reunited with his wife in San Francisco, and he started to get really weird. He encouraged her to become a stripper, which she did, and then he became very jealous over her. He encouraged them to open up their marriage, which they did, but then, of course, he acted very weird and jealous. Lake weirded out his wife because he would do things like put the utilities in different names of other people, he kept tons of weapons all over the house, and he talked a lot about the novel The Collector. Their only friends were a couple who lived on the same street as them, a Charles Gunner and his family. Ultimately, Lake's wife left him within like a year of Lake's discharge. In 1972, Lake met a new woman through personal ads. They became a couple, and he quickly introduced kinky sex into their relationship, like we're talking bondage and swinging. Within three months or so, Lake convinced her to start prostituting herself, and he basically became her pimp. The kinky sex and tricking was one thing, but then Lake started talking about snuff films. She didn't know what, this woman didn't know what snuff films were, and she's quoted as saying, he told me that it involved two people having sex, and then one person kills the other during a climax, and that Lake said it was the ultimate sexual high. Having already been talked into several other relatively transgressional things in the short period of their relationship, hearing this to her sounded like a massive 
blaring red alarm. So she left him in 1973. Lake moved out to Ukiah, where he took butcher classes, which is an interesting parallel to Richard Ramirez, who also worked for a time as a butcher. Right. From here, Leonard Lake made his way to a quasi-commune known as the Ranch in Ukiah. I guess you could call it a commune. The ranch was nine square miles where some 200 families settled near what is today known as Culpella in Mendocino County. It was a back-to-the-land hippie type of thing, right? The bylaws prohibited pesticides and firearms, things of this nature. People living there would often take hippie names like Zephyr and Beaver. There would be solstice celebrations, medieval dancing, nudism. But mind you, this is like not like a full commune in the sense, like this is more like a hippie community. Like people still had parcels of land and had their own houses. It wasn't like a full on communal living situation. Interestingly, saw reference to a black magic cult operating in the community, run by a couple named Otter and Morning Glory. Leonard Lake had met a woman who went by the name of Venus. Venus was working in Ukiah as an occupational therapist, but she needed help repairing and fixing up her cabin, so she brought Lake on to live as a tenant. They were briefly lovers, but he sort of started weirding her out. She got bad vibes from him. Over time, she even said he was mind-fucking me. Lake offered to buy her property, and she sold to him in order to get away from him. That solved the problem for Venus, but not for the ranch commune, because Lake proceeded to just weird everybody out there too. He frequently offered to take pictures of women and children, and he would use this as a pretext to make advances on them. Around this time, Lake's interest in survivalism increased. He loved to read Soldier of Fortune magazine. He didn't get along with people his own age, and most of his long-term relationships were with people he could manipulate in some way. To that end, Lake began to grow marijuana, and this became both his main source of income for like the rest of his life, and a method by which he would manipulate people into being his friends and or victims. The weed dealer from hell, I guess you could say. And I realize I'm making Lake sound like a total freak, which he absolutely was, but I don't mean to make it sound like he was nothing but bad vibes. Plenty of people found him charming and or attractive. He could find sexual partners. He had tons of friends, though over time he would sort of push normal people away and the number of women he convinced to let him photograph them nude was astounding. Lake kept a large binder of women that he had photographed nude, and he would show just about anybody who wanted the binder. The 70s, man, it was just a completely different time. But what is a serial killer if not someone with a dream, right? Lake's dream, which he would discuss with an astounding number of people he called Operation Miranda, named after the character from the novel The Collectors, like I mentioned, right? It possibly morphed over time because, especially in the ranch commune era, most of the people who remembered it understood it as a dream of having a bunker which could shelter Lake in the event of a nuclear attack. 
again, weirdly like both Jim Jones and Charles Manson's fixations, right? And also a weird fixation around the general Ukiah area and vaguely specifically around this period of time as well. Now, in my episode on Walter Breen, I discussed the weird, weird people at the Renaissance Fair scene, right? Leonard Lake was there, in the mix. Leonard Lake joined the Society for Creative Anachronisms, which was apparently full of freaks and predators. I don't know that he ever met Walter Breen, but they were floating in the same stew of San Francisco freaks and weirdos, they almost certainly knew people who knew each other, at a minimum, and they were probably at some fairs at the same time. In this milieu, Lake acquired the usage of a unicorn to attract women and girls. A unicorn, I hear you asking, yes. A few of you might know this story, but a guy from St. Louis, Missouri, named Timothy Zell, aka Otter, of the aforementioned Black Magic Cult, aka Oberon Zell Ravenheart, his shitty Renfair name. This guy had figured out how to produce a goat that had a single horn sprouting from its forehead. The method was a simple surgery on a male goat just a few hours after it was, you know, was born. If you haven't seen this, I do encourage you to Google Sir Lancelot Goat Unicorn. Sir Lancelot in particular traveled with the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Zell owns the patent for the process. It is in a sort of legal gray zone because it does kind of constitute cruelty to animals. Yes, the guy who invented the goat unicorn knew Leonard Lake. According to one book, it was even Lake's idea to bring Sir Lancelot to festivals in the first place. And it was through Sir Lancelot that Lake met a 16-year-old girl who Lake began dating, or I guess you could say grooming is the better term, not dating. Right. Separately, Lake was also grooming a teenage daughter of another member of the ranch community. He would take this girl's virginity. She would recall that he was very gentle, and she said that he, she had no clue or indication that he was into sadism, basically. Though she did say that he tried to open up their relationship, which she shut down. Around the same time, Lake was establishing contact with a lot of like-minded survivalists, mostly through personal ads in Soldier of Fortune magazine. He used the pseudonym Tom Myers, which is <laughs> extremely funny, if you know about the comedian Tom Myers. Lake met a soldier named Mark Novak. Novak came down to his cabin to stay with Lake for a few days, and Lake told Novak that he was in a Viking cult. He also hinted to Novak that he was in the shit in Vietnam. Around this time, at least one woman looked through his photography binder, if you'll recall that it was full of nude women, and she was shocked to find photographs of nude kids. And mind you, this isn't some like faux, high-minded, artistic, like, book of artistic photography, right? This isn't, like, maybe Lewis Carroll can use that argument, but like, no, this was clearly in a book of pornographic photos that Lake had taken of all sorts of, you know, of women that many of whom Lake was sleeping with, right? 
In the summer of 1980, Lake dressed as a monk and took Sir Lancelot to a renaissance fair in Marin County, where he met a woman named Clara Lynn Ballas, a.k.a. Cricket. She would become Leonard Lake's wife. By the way, Ballas is a Hungarian surname. It derives from the Greek word meaning bent, distorted, or crooked. I kid you not. Cricket was very freaky. She was into bondage, domination, sex toys, swinging, into making pornography with Leonard Blake. More on Cricket later. Much more. Around this time, the ranch community experienced a series of burglaries, and they suspected it was Lake. A marijuana farmer got his crop ripped off, and they blamed Lake. As I mentioned, Lake would fire his guns constantly, and at one point he was confronted by one of the residents who, you know, said, like, you're, you're not allowed to, like, shoot guns around here. And instead of saying either no, or I'm sorry, or I'm going to do it anyway, no, instead Lake shouted at him and said, I could kill everyone on the ranch one by one. I could go <laughs> I could go from house to house with an automatic weapon and no one would ever know. Which is like obviously a truly like insane person response, right? Finally things came to a head when Leonard Lake's storage shed caught on fire. Volunteers rushed to help put it out, except in the storage shed was tons and tons of ammunition and you know maybe you know or maybe you don't know but if there's a fire and there's ammunition it will shoot like from a gun so bullets were just shooting everywhere right and so firefighters the volunteer firefighters had to hide behind trees to avoid getting like shot basically that in addition to lake getting caught stealing lumber from a job site, both of these things combined to get him evicted from the community.
Lake and Cricket moved to Philo, California, where Lake became one of the volunteer firemen in the county. Always trying to worm into things, Lake became not just a you know, volunteer firefighter, but the county firefighter's secretary. He even wrote their bylaws. He donated books to the fire department relating to the topic, including several on handling incendiary devices and starting fires. Interestingly, one of the books that he donated was published by the CIA. Lake and Cricket found a job managing a motel, the Philo Motel. This is some real Bates Motel shit, because Lake and Cricket lived at the motel, ran the motel, operated it, and filmed pornography there. We know that they were filming pornography between themselves, but if you're wondering whether they did any peeping shit, well, we don't know that it happened, but it is fair to speculate given literally everything we're going to talk about from here on out. Lake and Cricket married in September 1981. At the same time, Cricket was working as a teacher's aide. We know, thanks to courtroom testimony years later, that Cricket was finding 14-year-old girls and convincing them to be photographed for Lake. There was also video of Cricket claiming to know several very attractive 14-year-olds and inviting men to send her their addresses if interested. What does this remind you of? Keep that in mind. We'll circle back to that. An article stated that she was fired from this job for teaching kids how to use explosives, which is insane, makes no sense. She argued that the kids might need to blow up a stump living out in the sticks, but no matter how you slice it, this is bizarre. Not long after that, Lake got a job as a youth camp counselor. No, don't think about that too much. It's at this point that Lake receives a visitor for the first time, Charles Eng, who would become very important to Leonard Lake. Let's pause the story on Lake and let's switch over to Eng to catch him up to this moment where they meet, right? Charles Cheetah Eng was born in British Hong Kong in 1960. His father was a wealthy camera salesman who would later become an executive for a German camera company, Leica. Unlike Lake, Eng grew up relatively normal. Like, less of a freak, I guess you could say. There are stories of him getting beat by his dad, but again, neither his siblings nor, you know, friends or family recalled him being, like, particularly excessively beat for Hong Kong in the 60s. The Ng family seemed to have a genuinely happy family life. Ng even kept a pet chicken, and there are not stories of him abusing animals like Lake did. Kind of fucked up, though, the family did end up eating the chicken, which Ng cried about as a kid. Ng was a huge fan of Bruce Lee movies, and he became a lifelong martial arts enthusiast. According to an article in Penthouse, Ng exhibited behavioral problems starting pretty early on. His family sought psychiatric care for him after he started stealing at the age of 10. He would often get into fights. There's a story of him even throwing Molotov cocktails off of a rooftop at one point. 
and he was a little firebug. You know, so we're getting some of the classic warning signs, right? He got expelled from a good school at 15, so Aang's father sent him to Great Britain to attend a boarding school. Aang attended Bentham Grammar School in Yorkshire, England. No, it was not named after Jeremy Bentham, but after the town Bentham. It's hilarious because you look at the notable alumni and it's like a politician from Malawi, a human rights attorney. Interestingly, this human rights attorney, Gareth Pierce, defended like the Guildford Four, the Birmingham Six, Julian Assange, and then it's like Charles Ng. <laughs> Not a very long or particularly distinguished list of alumni, right? I think I saw that one of the one of Ng's family members might have taught at the school as well. I think I saw that. As much as I would love to hold up him going to school in England as something sus, I just didn't find a lot to indicate anything sus. Except for your general run-of-the-mill, like, buggering that happens at, you know, boarding schools. I'm sure that's not great for everyone involved. Doesn't really matter though because Aang didn't stay there very long because he got expelled for stealing from his classmates and he was sent back to Hong Kong. In 1979, Aang's father sent him to live with his aunt who lived in San Leandro, you know, in the Bay Area of California. Aang lived with her and attended Notre Dame College. No, not the university in Indiana, but the small school in San Francisco. Mind you, Ng had a student visa. He was not a U.S. citizen. For this period of his life, there are stories of Ng being basically a huge fucking dumbass. Like, he drove his aunt's station wagon into a utility pole. Separately, he also drove it into a neighbor's car. If you'll recall, at the top of the episode, both of them got caught, basically, because Aang sucked at shoplifting. It's almost like there were two sides to Aang, one that was competent and another that was like a bumbling idiot. Aang briefly moved into the Notre Dame College dormitory. Then, without telling his family, or really anyone, he enlisted in the U.S. Marines. Now, I know what you're thinking. Jimmy, didn't you say Aang wasn't a U.S. citizen? Wasn't he in the U.S. under a student visa? Why, don't you worry about that. Aang's military record indicates that he was born in Bloomington, Indiana. What's that? What's that, Indiana? What's that specifically, Bloomington? Oh, okay. <laughs> sure, man. Like, uh... I wonder if there were any other interesting characters associated with Bloomington or any other reason to think that there was something specifically weird about that. Yeah, let's not worry about it too much. I'm sure it's nothing. Years later, Aang would claim that the recruiting sergeant helped him fake documents normally needed to prove citizenship. I think that we can assume that's true, plus dot dot dot, maybe a few things that were left unstated. So Aang went through boot camp, in the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego. Then he underwent advanced infantry training in Camp Pendleton. Hey, where did 
Leonard Lake received psychotherapy again? Camp Pendleton? Oh, okay, cool. Gotcha. Oh, yeah, was, hey, no, no worries. I was just asking because, you know, that's where Aang was too. <laughs> the training that Aang received was reportedly infantry weaponry training. Marines who remember Aang at all remembered him as a loner who frequently practiced martial arts. In 1981, Ing was 21 years old. He was stationed at a weapons company at the Marine Corps Air Station in Hawaii. Like I said, those who remembered him remembered him as a loner and an outstanding weapons handler. Ing was subjected to some light racial prejudice, but several Marines befriended Ing and would practice martial arts with him. Not trying to downplay the racism, I'm sure it was bad, but, you know. At this time, Charles Eng met a certain Mark Novak, the same Novak who had visited Leonard Lake and, you know, Leonard Lake's cabin. Novak shared an interest in survivalism and discussed Lake with Eng. Novak did not really get a read that Eng was interested in sex. He kind of thought maybe Eng was bisexual. Got a read that Aang was mostly interested in military weaponry, martial arts, and being the perfect Marine. What's that quote? Sex isn't gonna help me be a better Marine, so I'm not fucking interested in it. So part of Aang's duties included guarding a locked armory from time to time. As the story goes, and mind you, this is the official story, not any counter histories we could possibly come up with, Aang got the idea to steal some of the rarer and more valuable weaponry and sell them. Ng planned the operation and roped in and kind of blackmailed some of his fellow marines to carry it out with him. Also, mind you, Ng is not a US citizen, so we essentially have a case where he snuck into the Marine Corps, barring the very strong possibility that they knew and allowed him to, and now he's attempting to steal military explosives and weapons and sell them. Or, you know, who knows exactly why. <laughs> like, the stuff he was stealing, we're talking sniper rifles, fully automatic machine guns, grenade launchers, pretty heavy weaponry. Here's an interesting angle to the whole affair. Part of the plan involved greasing the weapons and packing them into PVC tubes and burying those tubes. Now what does this remind you of? I'll give you a hint. It starts with G and rhymes with Ladio. Now one of the Marines who carried this plan out mentioned that, quote, the Syndicate, unquote, would handle selling the weapons. As to who the Syndicate was, I suppose you can let your imagination run wild. Ng insisted that he got ripped off by the Syndicate and never received the money that he was, you know, owed. Though it's obviously hard to really believe Aang about anything he said ever, like across the board, in any context. <laughs> Again, not saying, like, <laughs> the idea that he got ripped off is believable, I'm just saying, you know, you can't believe it. Either way, Naval Investigative Services arrested Aang within three days and charged him with conspiracy to commit larceny of military weapons. NIS convinced Aang to confess in exchange for a short, hard labor prison sentence. So Aang made a full confession. Then, 
after confessing, and this is very strange, Aang escaped custody after confessing. So Aang basically went full survival mode and just hid in a remote part of Oahu. Like, no tent, no supplies. He almost died in the Hawaiian rainforest. Who does he turn to? Sergeant Mark Novak, who brought Aang clothes and a plane ticket to San Francisco. He also gave Aang the address of the Philo Motel, where Leonard Lake was working. That is how Charles Aang was brought to Leonard Lake. Or, you know, maybe I should say a shadowy broker of mutual freak interests who very well could have been a spy. Right. Now, it would come out in trial later that Lake and Aang may have committed a rape together near the San Francisco International Airport against a sex worker and this would have been very early in their meeting each other. Lake, going by the name Tom Myers again, took this prostitute out to dinner, paid her to take photos of her and have sex, and then Lake and Aang jumped her in a motel room. Reportedly, she told the police that Lake said, this is something we do all the time, but we usually kill the girls we've been with, but I like you, so we're not going to kill you which could not have possibly been true in the sense that, like, they had only just met Lake and Aang, I mean. But, of course, when Lake and Aang were, like, talking to victims, they would frequently just lie. That's a whole other thing we'll get to. It's very strange, because, you know, this is a mind game thing, right? They're just fucking with, like, these victims' minds. Now here's where things get even more curious and weird. The FBI, working with the Mendocino County Sheriff's Office, got a tip from the U.S. Marine Corps that Aang, a fugitive, was hiding in Philo. Which, literally, who could have known that but Novak, right? Literally the only person. So, an FBI task force and sheriff's deputies raided the Philo Motel, on April 29th, 1982, in order to find and arrest Aang. Yes, this means that the feds already knew about Aang years before their eventual arrest. Let's keep that in mind. So they arrested Aang on the spot. During the raid, they found a small arsenal of weapons. Here's what they found. Six handguns, six rifles, several being fully automatic and or with filed off serial numbers, handguns, TNT, silencers, tear gas, boxes and boxes of ammunition, some fully automatic Mac-10 machine guns with silencers. Think Mitch Warbell III, right? The Mac-10s in particular were super illegal because they were both silenced and fully automatic. You know, that's the classic, like, <laughs> like, only good for, like, killing people and drug deals type of gun, right? The feds also arrested Cricket, but they let her go. Lake was arrested on 17 felony counts of firearms violations. He had also violated probation from previous burglaries and thefts in Ukiah, so Lake was looking at the strong likelihood of a considerable stretch in prison. Cricket got him out on bail. Lake skipped bail 
skipped his hearing, and for the rest of his life, Leonard Lake would be a fugitive. Ng was flown back to Hawaii on a military plane to face trial. Lake and Ng had spent a total of about six months together in Philo before they were both arrested. Case closed, right? Case not closed. So, Cricket did not want to live as a full-time fugitive like Leonard Blake, or, you know, as a fugitive's woman. So, in late 1982, Lake and Cricket divorced. More because of the fugitive status than anything, as they would continue to have a lengthy, ongoing relationship. She moved back in with her parents. Her father had recently purchased a remote cabin in the Sierra Nevada foothills near Wilseyville, Calaveras County, California. Calaveras County, I mean, good lord. Lake would stay there sometimes, but for the most part, in this period, you know, these next few years, he was nomadic, selling weed, committing petty thefts, and maybe some major ones. You know, he called these ops or operations. Lake frequently stalked around the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco, robbing people, picking up women, sometimes assaulting and killing people, it's believed. The dark side of the Haight-Ashbury, the dream of the 1960s reduced to ashes as killers like Leonard Lake stalked around. In late 1982, Leonard Lake convinced his dim-witted brother Donald to come live up in Northern California with him, and he said that he found his brother a job. As far as anyone can tell, Leonard Lake killed his brother Donald and took his identity. No one ever saw Donald again. Though for the rest of this crime spree, Leonard Lake would frequently use his brother's identity. Starting on New Year's Day, 1983, Leonard Lake began keeping a daily journal, which he would write in, again daily, for the next two years. The early half of what would become a truly insane crime spree. In his diary, Leonard Lake made a list of things he needed to obtain in order to carry out Operation Miranda. In this list, entitled, Things I want to get, he listed an assault rifle, a 9mm Colt Commander, an AR-7 22 caliber rifle. In his diary, he would also log his lovemaking sessions with Cricket and other women. He would write down any movies he saw, meetings with his mother and, you know, siblings, and the ops that he ran to make money, which in the early period was mostly petty crimes. He noted in his diary, quote, changed Don's address, unquote, which is to say the P.O. box where his brother's social security disability checks went, which he was cashing. Now Lake wrote in his diary about Operation Miranda, writing, ah, the collector, has it really been nearly 20 years I've carried this fantasy, and Miranda, how fitting, my lovely little prisoner of the future. I suppose in my way I am the same wimp as the hero, and in my way just as crazy. I have no doubt that we wimps have been compensating for our inabilities since the dawn of history. Sad, really. Still, how can we die if we never live?" Unquote. Towards the end of March, Lake wrote a long entry which approaches a manifesto. He said, 
Once I had a wife, she was my connection to the world. Through her, I could love, trust, believe in things others are allowed to believe in. I could have died for her, killed for her, even gone to jail, given up my freedom in exchange for the security of her love. Once I had a wife, now I have no ties to the world. I am both above it and removed from it. Oh, there are those I love, my sisters, even Cricket still. But none of these bind me to the order of existence. I am free to die with no responsibility. All I love, I love alone. Freedom, an empty privilege, but still one I must bear with determination. Amusing, our land of the free is not prepared to deal effectively with a truly free man. What can they do to one who carries cyanide bills in his pocket? When death holds no fears, when there are no responsibilities behind the next meal, society, you are being socked and you don't understand by who or why, and if you did, you are powerless against one who is not afraid to die." Unquote. Blake sometimes stayed with his buddy Charles Gunner, who we mentioned before. Gunner was on some cock shit, like he liked to have Leonard Lake make love to his wife. Lake, for his part, was planning on murdering Gunner in an op he charmingly called Operation Fish. The plan was to have Gunner come up to the Wilseyville cabin where he would be killed. I think Operation Fish comes from the fact that Gunner was a big fat guy, like a whale. It's stupid. Anyway, the plan was to have Gunner come up to the Wilseyville cabin where he would be killed. And that's pretty much what happened sometime in May 1983. Leonard Lake would also steal and use Charles Gunner's identity as well. Around this time, and writing in relation to Operation Fish, Lake wrote, I am a dangerous person. Society would worry if they knew I existed and what I was up to. Unquote. So this is what Lake was doing while Aang was captured and, you know, in prison. Let's see what Aang was doing around the same time. In Hawaii, Aang pleaded guilty. I mean, technically he already pleaded guilty, but he pleaded guilty again and was sentenced to 18 months in the United States Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth. For those who don't know, Leavenworth is where I think a lot of the armed forces send prisoners. While Aang was there, he got up to some interesting extracurriculars. Namely, Aang was planning to assemble a team to carry out bank robberies and steal weapons at military bases. We know about it from a guy Aang tried to recruit for this team, John Carty, who was at first intrigued, but then started to get freaked out as Aang's plans grew increasingly ambitious and violent. Carty said, Aang went from simple bank jobs to talking about stealing military missiles and shooting down 747s. Cardi also talked about Aang's plans to bomb bus stations and said Aang talked about sexually torturing women. Reportedly, Cardi said that Aang talked about plans for a bunker with a torture room. When Aang was serving at Leavenworth, he fully expected to be deported upon his release. By all accounts, he should have. Yet, instead, Aang served his time and was released in the U.S. You have to ask yourself why. Now, as Aang told inmates about his plans, Lake was carrying them out. He had been building an underground bunker 
at Cricket's Cabin in Wilseyville. In October 1983, Leonard Lake sat down and recorded what is called the Philosophy Tape. In it, Leonard Lake sat in a recliner at the cabin and spoke at a tripod-mounted video camera. He said, Good evening. It's Sunday, October 22nd, 23rd, something like that. Very close to my 38th birthday. And I'm starting this tape without script or any real organization of what I want to say. But I do feel the need to explain. This tape, which you're hearing now, is going to be the lead-in of the various phases of construction of a building, which hopefully will be the first of a series of underground buildings. But the main emphasis of the building, the whole justification for its expense and its effort, will be a hidden portion, a secret room, if we can call it that, that will house a cell, a jail cell, if you will. The purpose of that cell will be the imprisonment of a young lady 
who probably at this moment is unknown to me. These are troubled times. There are wars and rumors of wars going on. Today, 135 Marines were killed in Lebanon. My words here, he's referring, of course, to the terrorist attack on Marines in Beirut. Lake continued saying, designed not around the cell, but ultimately around the concept of a secret, secure living place for myself and perhaps for friends. It would be a lie to say it was for anything other than primarily emphasizing the cell. Posterity may care less about this tape, care less about what I have to say. To be honest, I'm not sure who I want to show this tape to, or whether I will ever show it to anyone. But for anyone that is interested, anyone who needs my justification and my rationalizations as to why I would want to imprison and in fact enslave a woman, they have only to look closely at me. I'm a realist. I'm 38 years old, a bit chubby, not much hair, and losing what I have, not particularly attractive to women. Or should I say, particularly attracting to women. All of the traditional magnets, the money, position, power, I don't have. And yet, I'm still very sexually active, and I'm still very much attracted to a particular type of woman who, almost by definition, is totally uninterested in me. Dirty old man, pervert. I'm attracted to young women, sometimes even as young as 12, although to be fair, certainly up to 18 to 22 is pretty much an ideal range as far as my interests go. I like very slim women, very pretty of course, petite, small-breasted, long hair, but such a woman by virtue of her youth, her attractiveness, her desirability, to the majority of mankind simply has better options. There's no particular reason why such a woman should be interested in me, but there's much more to it than that. It's difficult to explain my personality in 25 words or less, but I am, in fact, a loner. I enjoy peace. The quiet, the solitude, I enjoy being by myself, and while my relationships with women in the past have been sexually successful, socially they've almost always been a failure. I've gone through two divorces, innumerable women, 50 to 55, I forget exactly the count. I'm afraid the bottom line statement is the simple fact that I'm a sexist slob. I enjoy using women, and of course women aren't particularly interested in being used. I certainly enjoy sex, I enjoy the dominance of climbing on a woman and using her body, but I'm not particularly interested in the id, the ego, all of the things that a man should be interested in to complement a woman's needs. Now I can fake these emotions, and I can fake them very well, and in the past I've been very successful with attracting interesting and attractive women, simply because I did fake fairly well an interest in their needs and their requirements. So momentarily I had what I wanted, and they thought they had what they thought they wanted. But in the long term, I don't want to bother. What I want is an off-the-shelf sex partner. I want to be able to use a woman whenever and however I want. And when I'm tired, or satiated, or bored, or not interested, I simply want to put her away, lock her up in a little room, get her out of my sight, out of my life, and thus avoid what has heretofore been the obligation to entertain, or amuse, or satisfy a particular woman, or girlfriend's whims, or emotional whatevers. Such an arrangement is not only blatantly sexist, but highly illegal, there's no doubt about that violates all of the human rights and blah 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 blah. 
I'm going to spare posterity my concepts of other people's morality. I'm explaining my morality, what I feel, what I want, and as of this moment, I'm going to try to get. The advantages of such a situation are, of course, obvious, and even beyond sexual, such a woman totally enslaved would be useful for the mundane chores I have to do, but not particularly interested in doing. Cleaning house, washing dishes, etc., etc. A slave. There's no way around it. Primarily a sexual slave, but nonetheless a physical slave as well. And I believe that if I can construct a holding cell, a place where I can put such a woman, where I can walk off and feel secure that she can't escape, that I can create such a facility that is so stark, so empty, so cold, so quiet, so totally removed from the world, that fairly quickly by a combination of painful punishments, that fairly quickly by a combination of painful punishments when I'm displeased and minor rewards such as music or magazines or some such stuff, this is my belief that I can quickly condition a woman to cooperate with me fully and in fact even look forward to cooperating with me simply for no other reason than that such cooperation would be a relief from boredom. Whether I can do this or not remains to be seen. Obviously I've never done such a thing before and it may not work. However, I want to try. I want to try." Unquote. Cost and logistics of constructing the bunker-occupied lake's monologue for about a minute or so before he returns to, you know, his manifesto such as it is. Life as I am living it is boring. The challenge of this project, the excitement, the thrill of it will be an exciting experience even if it fails. As long as I don't get caught, it's very attractive. It's something I've fantasized about daily. We'll see. I don't think there's much more to say on the subject. This hopefully will be a mystery." Unquote. Several days after recording that and on the same videotape, Lake filmed footage of a backhoe digging into the earth near the cabin, constructing what would become his bunker. Lake can be heard on the video saying, I can hardly wait. On New Year's Day 1984, Lake wrote in his journal, I'm older, fatter, bolder, and not much wiser. Interesting to see where I go from here. Now if we want to engage in some amateur psychology, or I guess technically professional psychology, because I'm quoting a professional here, I've got a passage from an article which I will quote as to Lake and Eng's motives. Quote, One suggestion is that Lake and Eng were already capable of such crimes as individuals, but it wasn't until they met that they began to fuel each other's sadosexual desires to inflict pain and death on others. The situation may be an example of what criminal psychologists call gestalt, where the organized whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Not unlike that other tag team from hell, Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Stool. Unquote.
looks like.